Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to episode 23 of Discovering the Old Testament. In this installment, we'll take a closer look at one of the most storied individuals in all of Hebrew scripture, David, son of Jesse, king of Israel. Uh, I need to make uh, a little quick note here and beg your indulgence. I'm uh, coming off a cold at the moment, so I'm not in my usual voice uh, this time. I hope that isn't a problem for our listeners. Continuing, uh, David's story is exciting, compelling, tragic, and very, very human. I know I have always been impressed by the candor with which the books of Samuel portray him. But in addition to that, with David, we start getting into a time when it becomes possible to confirm the historical existence of some biblical characters. The actual existence of David has been a matter of controversy for a long time, particularly with the rise of the biblical minimalist school. However, two important pieces of inscriptional evidence strengthen the case for an actual King David. The first is the inscription of King Mesha, the so-called Moabite stone, which makes mention of the House of David. The text here is somewhat damaged, and so this reading was tentative, but a careful restoration of the stone in 2002 confirmed this reading. This stone is from the 9th century BCE, which puts it very close to David's time. The second piece of evidence was discovered in the 1993-94 excavation season at the site of Tel Dan in northern Israel, and also includes a very clear reference to the House of David. David's story is less well-confirmed, but no less compelling for all that. As we described in episode 21, David was an early protege of Saul. He was his musician uh, and his armor-bearer. The text of Samuel describes David as a cunning warrior and highly charismatic. Both became problems for Saul. David's superior reputation as a warrior was the final straw for Saul, as we also mentioned, but David's reputation on the battlefield may have had some, shall we say, enhancement along the way. The story of David and Goliath has become proverbial. It's part of our language. Describing something as a David and Goliath situation uh, means that most people will know exactly what you're talking about. Goliath of Gath was, of course, a giant warrior who had challenged the Israelites to send a warrior to meet him in single combat. The story details the specifics of his war gear, mentioning, among other things, that the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. But there is another passage in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 19, that reads, Then there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, son of Jare Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Now, although Goliath of Gath may not sound quite like Goliath the Gittite, 
Linguistically, the names are very, very close. Besides, the description of the size of his spear shaft makes it pretty clear that we're talking about Goliath, whom David is credited with slaying. We don't have much on who Elhanan was. To complicate matters further, 1 Chronicles 20 has a similar text, only in this case it says that Elhanan killed Lachmi, the brother of Goliath, and also makes reference to the spear shaft. What do we make of this? It's not beyond the scope of possibility that David or his supporters gave him credit for Elhanan's feat of arms in order to burnish his reputation. Meanwhile, forced to flee from Saul's court, David builds his own power base and even serves as a mercenary commander for the Philistine king of Gath. David demonstrates a mastery of deception when he convinces his Philistine overlord of his loyalty while actually protecting the southern Israelite tribes from attacks by desert raiders. The ability to outfox his opponents was a hallmark of David's career. After the death of Saul at the Battle of Mount Gilboa, David was crowned king of Judah and thereafter consolidated his power. Saul's son, Ishbal, remained in charge of the northern tribes, but David managed to wear him down until Ishbal's general, Abner, defected to David's side. Ishbal was killed soon thereafter, but what makes this unification of the tribes significant is that the remaining tribes approached David and offered to be his subjects. In other words, David became king by the consent of the tribes, not because he beat them in battle and forced them into his coalition. There is another politically savvy move of David's that bears mentioning. He captured a Jebusite city named Jerusalem and made it his capital. The reason why this was such a good move is that at the time, Jerusalem was not in the territory of any one tribe. It sat roughly on the border between Judah in the south and the northern tribes, which is why it became known as the city of David and the acknowledged capital of his new growing empire. But David's charisma was offset by some less laudable qualities. One could argue that by protecting the tribes in the south while working for the Philistines, he bought their loyalty at Saul's expense. Although Samuel anoints David as king when David was still a young man, the legitimate heir to Saul's throne would have been Ishbal, whom David defeated. Of course, there was the unsavory matter of murdering Uriah the Hittite in order to cover up his adultery with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, which the Bible points to as the tipping point at which the house of David slides into moral decline and anarchy. David has to put down revolts by his own sons that enjoyed a lot of popular support, which indicates that not everyone was happy with the way David was running his kingdom. For one thing, he instituted forced labor gangs, and he created a military draft following a census taken of the population. This was frequently considered a sure way to bring bad luck to the people, along with being a prelude to increasing taxation. David was also guilty of some significant atrocities. One instance was his treatment of Moabite prisoners of war following his victory over them as a king. 
In that incident he massacred two-thirds of them and enslaved the remaining third. This is all the more puzzling, since when Saul was trying to run David to ground, David sent his parents to the king of Moab for protection. There is a Jewish tradition that the Moabites somehow misused or harmed David's parents, but there's no actual substantiation for this. The bottom line, however, is that David, as depicted in the books of Samuel, was not one to hold back. He was devious, ambitious, crafty, and, when the need arose, utterly ruthless. But in the midst of David's machinations, the narrative also paints a picture of a man torn by the strife and division in his own house, caused by his own moral failings. David is also remembered as a musician and a poet. Many psalms are ascribed to him, although there are very few that could actually have originated with David. But it's fair to call him a patron of the arts. It seems that he commissioned at least a number of psalms, and we also know that as his empire grew and brought wealth to Israel, David established schools for training scribes. In fact, it might very well be because of this act that there were people around to record the ups and downs of his kingdom. It's interesting to consider the latitude that the Bible allows a king, even when the opinion of the authors is clearly divided over whether kings are a good idea to begin with. Butchery, skullduggery, undermining the current king, double crosses to the nth degree are one thing, but mess around with a married woman and you've got serious problems. This isn't to downplay the seriousness of what David did in his liaison with Bathsheba and subsequent murder of her husband. Even a king had limits, and those limits were in place in order to maintain a modicum of trust that he was ultimately working in the best interests of the people. That is one of the less obvious insights that we gain from David's adultery. The Israelite kingdom was theocratic in a way that someone could actually call him on it. The prophet Nathan stands before David and tells a heart-wrenching story of a poor man who had a lamb that was like a member of the family, but a rich man came along and wantonly killed it. When David denounces the rich man's lack of compassion and greed, Nathan retorts, You are the man. He does this to David's face in his own palace. In any other kingdom at that time, David's affair and murder of Uriah would have caused nary a ripple. No one would have dared to confront the king and call him to account. In any other kingdom, Nathan wouldn't have lasted five minutes after a performance like that. That brings us to address the question of just why it was that David is so revered, not just as a military leader or a folk hero, or even for his political accomplishments. One consistent factor in David's character is that when God called upon him to do something, or not, he complied. When he screwed up, and Nathan demanded that he repent, he did. 
This is why when we get to the book of Kings, we find several passages to the effect that David was true to Yahweh, or that David's heart was wholly true to Yahweh, or words to that effect. Moreover, as the books of Kings evaluates the reigns of other kings, good or bad, King David is the standard. Their righteousness, or lack of it, is generally stated in terms of whether they conducted themselves before God as David had done. Given David's rather colorful history, this raises an interesting question of just how much mayhem and turmoil an Israelite king could stir up and still be considered to be walking in the ways of Yahweh. But one gets the idea that so long as certain things remain constant, the God of the Old Testament understood the needs of ancient realpolitik. The unsparing image of David in the books of Samuel is not the harshest of the critiques they have generated among scholars over the years. Generally, the consensus is that they were written no earlier than the 7th century BCE, and some of the material regarding boundaries and administrative lists correspond pretty well with what we know of the situation in David's time. But apart from that, there is every imaginable or unimaginable interpretation for those willing to dig far enough into the commentaries and studies. When considering such evaluations, it pays to remember that there are editorial layers to the text. There is evidence for at least two major editorial passes. The first one seems to be intended to reduce the image of Saul in favor of David and Solomon. The second, almost certainly the work of the Deuteronomic school, is more concerned with their religious agenda of promoting monotheism and binding the fortunes of Israel generally to their fulfillment of covenant obligations. Modern assessments of Israelite history that blend textual and archaeological evidence have yet to produce much in the way of a persuasive consensus, and it is likely to remain that way for some time. David's decline and death, as depicted in the Bible, show a man caught in a web of treachery and grief. When his son Absalom rebelled and forced David to leave Jerusalem, David used spies both to gather intelligence on Absalom's plan and to persuade him not to act until David was ready. When David's forces defeat Absalom and the rebels at the wood of Ephraim, Absalom is killed and David is heartbroken, wishing that he had died instead of his traitorous son. David's general Joab is openly disgusted by the king's display of grief, but the reader cannot but feel something as David laments, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Even at the end, as David became bedridden, his oldest surviving son and natural heir tried to assume the throne. David had other wishes, namely that Bathsheba's son Solomon would inherit the crown. David's final instructions to Solomon included orders to kill his oldest remaining enemies on David's behalf. Not only did David become a paradigm for what a good Israelite king should be, he gives his name to a body of covenant that came to be quite controversial centuries later. After David established his new capital in Jerusalem, he moved the Ark of the Covenant to the city and housed it in a tent, theoretically the very tent used in the tabernacle in the wilderness. 
He isn't comfortable with this arrangement. He says to Nathan, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent, and offers to build something more fitting. Nathan appreciates the gesture, but what follows is, well, confusing. God, Nathan replies, will make David a house. The confusion lies in the two accounts we have of this conversation, one from Samuel, one from Chronicles. One uses the word house to refer to a temple, while the other is speaking of a house, as in a dynasty. The dynasty promise becomes a problem. The phrasing of Nathan's promise is such that it sounds like the house of David will be the ruling dynasty of the Israelite kingdom forever. Period. There are no conditions, no curses, or warnings, or penalties for disobedience, nothing to imply that somehow, some way, everything could go horribly, horribly wrong. The question of whether what became known as the Davidic Covenant was unconditional loomed large in the waning days of the Jewish kingdom, when the empires of Assyria and Babylon nibbled away at her holdings until not much was left apart from Jerusalem. The Mosaic Law most definitely was not unconditional. There was a point beyond which it would all come apart, and any obligations on God's part would cease to be. If the Davidic dynasty was indeed destined to reign forever, then by implication Jerusalem would never be taken nor the throne of David compromised. Some biblical writers, as they saw the deteriorating fortunes of the kingdom, assumed that there were conditions after all. The Deuteronomic school took the position that divine favor applied to David's house was contingent on strict obedience to the Mosaic Covenant and the Torah, and reinterpreted those promises to David accordingly. Disobedient Davidic successors were blamed for the decay and ultimate destruction of the Jewish nation-state. Still others awaited a restoration of the Davidic dynasty, and looked to the old promises made to David and his heirs to support these claims. The prophetic hopes found in Isaiah and other scriptures, where the prophet hopes for a contemporary Davidic king who would live up to the dynastic expectation, were transmuted into the hope of a future royal figure who would restore not only the Davidic dynasty, but the Israelite hegemony and political power of old. This fueled much of the speculation that grew into the messianic expectations that flourished starting in the mid-2nd century BCE. However one chooses to regard this fascinating and controversial figure from the Old Testament, it is fair to say that Israel's second king became more than a model for Israelite rulership. He became an archetype. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.